They still haven't improved on our model. Oh, you can't modify perfection. We are the best. Are there any more like us left on board? I'm the last one. These upstarts think I'm some old freak. Strap yourselves in. We'll be feeling the gravitational force right now. It's like being in the eye of a hurricane. What happened? Are you interested in black holes? How can one not be overwhelmed by the deadliest force in the universe? That long, dark tunnel to nowhere. Or somewhere. These are exactly answers yet to be explored. What the hell are you made of? I will travel where no man has dared to go. Into the black hole? In, through, and beyond. And now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Those other robots aren't any friendlier than Dr. Frankenstein's monster. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Hello and welcome back to Two True Freaks. And this month for our fourth week show, we're going to have one we've been meaning to do for a long time. The Black Hole. And I'd like to start it off with a quote from one of my heroes, Dr. Hans Reinhardt. And uh, I'd just like to say, it's about time people heard about their failures and my successes. And uh, also to talk <laughs> about other people's failures and my successes, I've got my um, longtime co-host, Scott Gardner, hey. and our special guest, Luke Giaconetti. A On huge... my ship, you ask. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going, fellas? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be an interesting one already, I can tell. When I was watching this movie again, when it, when Reinhardt said that line, I literally st- stood up out of my seat and said, Yes! <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> Let me write that you have, down. You have to love Dr. Reinhardt. He's, you know, he's... Uh... It, it, on the surface, it's 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 just over the top. But then when you when you sit down and watch it, it's really just genius how Maximilian Shell plays this character. And, and yeah. lines like that, lines like that, uh, you know, said, you know, said with a certain level of earnest are camp, but said with even more earnestness are high drama. You know. Well, when I first saw this, I saw this in the theater when I was a kid. I I you know I had no. Well, I guess I did have understanding of camp because it was in a few years of Flash Gordon, and I remember seeing Flash Gordon in the theater going, whoa, what the hell is going on here? This is like, uh, you know, this is just ridiculously cheesy. But, um, yeah, I thought he played it it perfectly. It's He was sort of uh, a more evil version of Captain Nemo, basically. You know, a more a, a little more twisted version of Captain Nemo, but who wouldn't be twisted if they were a sci- you know, a, a out, or already outspoken scientist and all of a sudden they had the chance to drive their ship into a black hole. Yeah, of course, you know, he would go crazy 
wanting to want you know doing whatever he had to do to to get his his goal now, i would have i was gonna say you mentioned captain nemo and and i'm sure we'll touch on all the similarities between this film and Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea but one of the best ways i've ever seen it put is that you know he's like nemo that quite literally wants to drive his ship into the jaws of the beast yes very much so uh, and, yeah and um yeah, and, and you know, so that 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 really just it just starts from there, and it continues and builds. And and in fact, that's a criticism I've often seen leveled against the black hole is that it's too much like Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. And my answer to that is, is you know, if you're gonna ape something, why don't you ape the best? You know, yeah. if you're gonna ape a a adventure story with I know a mad captain of a super ship, you know, that ape Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Plus, you're ripping yourself off as Disney, so there's really no yeah. harm, no foul. Hey, you know, um, uh, Forbidden Planet was The Tempest by Shakespeare, you know. Right. So what? That's what that made it better, you know. Yeah. You're, you're right. Put the those those elements that that came from the classics into it, and uh, theoretically, you should make a classic. I don't know if the Black Hole is considered a classic now. I mean, it uh, is by me and and by you I don't, guys. I don't, I'm sure the black hole is is all like if you if you do just a Google search on the black hole, you're going to get a lot of people saying, "Oh, it's Disney's attempt to cash in on Star Wars," which, uh-huh. on, right on the surface, is completely in, incorrect, because the black hole in its original form, as whether it was called Space Probe One or Centaurus or any of the multitude of working titles that this film had, began production two years or excuse me, three years before Star Wars was released. Right. Uh, production stretches back to the to the early 70s. So to say that it was an attempt to cash in is is uninformed because this was more of a way for Disney to try and produce a big uh, epic adventure film to, you know, that there's a theory that Disney made Mary Poppins and then spent the next 20 years trying to make Mary Poppins again. And the black hole is the same thing with 20,000 Lakes. They made twenty thousand leagues under the sea, and then kept trying to make it again. And this was their this was their all-out ball to the wall. We are going to make an adventure movie, and then Star Wars happened to come out before it and changed the vocabulary. Now, uh, now uh, to that actual point, I think while not an attempt to cash in on Star Wars, I think they, I know they definitely threw elements into the movie to cash in on Star Wars. And yeah, those are the yeah. elements that don't work. Those are the only things that really don't work in the movie for me, which I thought I didn't like this movie more than uh, than I actually did because when I saw it yeah. again, it was just like, wow, this is amazing. For you know, for 90% of it, it was amazing. It was when they tried to make the robots too, too cutesy. R2, give them, you know, they'd have a, had a couple R2-D2 moments with the robots. And... Um, and the the overture, the overture music, was a seemed to me to be like, especially when I was a kid and seeing it. And when it showed up in the movie, it was in a scene that was edited, and it was a shootout. And the overture music came out, and I remember as a kid going, "Oh, they're trying to be like Star Wars here, right. you know? This is very, very Star Warsy." I was going to say you were talking about the overture, and it's very funny because the Disney DVD actually has the overture in, it, uh, in its complete form, which the previous Anchor Bay VHS and DVD releases and, of course, the old-school uh, Disney VHS release did not have. 
So as I'm sitting down to watch this and the overture is playing, all I can hear in my head is uh-huh. Drew Feek's intro. <laughs> Keep lying, no good. You know? As I was yeah. watching it today, Scotty walked in the room when the overture started and did all the, the voice elements for the Two True Freaks <laughs> intro. That's very funny that you say that because he was doing that. But I mean, it's, before it's we get it, at work, I listen to I listen to I listen to the show all the time at work, and so in my head at work always is stuck. You belong in the circus, right next to the dog. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, before we get into to more of the details and and things about the movie, I I want everybody to tell their their origin story for Black Hole. Chris, did you have more for yours? Who did you see it well, with? I it was a I can't remember who the rest of the kids were, but it was sort of a it was sort of a you know mom gather up, you know my I know it was myself, my sister, and some of her probably the neighbors, neighbors kid, and uh, probably like Carl Carpinetti from up the street, you know probably just whoever was in driving distance, and uh, and it's one this is one of those movies this and like the Star Wars movies. And uh, and a few more are all ones in Superman the movie, especially are all ones that I can distinctly remember sitting in the movie theater, watching it. You know, sit, sitting there and the, the experience of watching it because I I was really sucked into this movie when I was a when I was a kid. It was very uh, it was not what I expected. It was a lot more dramatic and uh, somber than say star wars you know it was it was a melodrama you know operatic sort of you know even the music is is very operatic so it was it was a lot it was a very involving movie i remember that i remember being very sucked into it and and i also remember being disappointed at the star warsy parts going oh you know you know i don't need r2d2 in here you know but that's about all that's that's about it for my origin. It was in the, you know, it was in the movie theater in Watertown. Where else? What about you, Luke? Well, my my story is a little a little more unusual because this movie predates me on this planet by about six months because I was born in 1980. So, <laughs> oh my god! Uh, <laughs> I know it, it it throws everybody off every time I say that because apparently I sound like like an old person like you guys, but. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Well, that's well. all the time we have for this episode. Yeah, the Black Hole for me, I actually found this movie kind of by accident because growing up we never had the, the old VHS of it. And so I remember we had lots of Disney tapes, and I remember vaguely seeing the, that long three-minute trailer that, that is really just excellent. Uh, for the movie, but I never, I don't ever remember seeing it. And then I was just, I was going through uh, the Cinefantastique magazine. The Cinefantastique, for our readers, yeah, our listeners who don't know, was a very well-regarded genre film magazine that began, I want to say, in like 1971 and ran all the way into the early 2000s. And it was for a long time noted for its very in-depth coverage of genre films and treating genre films with respect and not just as, you know, um, popcorn munchers. And my father had every single issue. In fact, he still does, except for the ones that I've got here at the house. And I was just going through them one day, and there's a double issue uh, from 1979 with this beautiful painted cover of the Cygnus and the Palomino and the Probe Ship, and it's a gatefold cover. 
And I was like, the black hole? My God, this is that Disney movie. What? I don't know anything about this. So I took this magazine and read it cover to cover over the span of about a month. And then I said, oh, I've got to track this down. So then it became scouring the cable uh, guidebook every month to see when Disney Channel was going to play it. And so I, I got into this film when I was 14 years old in high school. And, you know, just reading the production journal and everything from Cine Fantastique and then watching it and just seeing all the, the, the painstakingly crafted effects and really kind of, I, I, I kind of, I guess I grasped right away what they were kind of going for with the story here. And so I just kind of fell in love with this, you know, uh, as, as, a, as a team. And from there, it's just, you know, it's just always stuck around. I got my, you know, one of the first movies I watched with my, uh, my wife when we first started dating was The Black Hole, you know, and, and even she kind of liked it, which is odd because normally she doesn't like science fiction. But, uh, you know, and, and now I've, I'm looking forward to introducing my, my son and his brother who's on the way to that down the road a bit, you know. So I, I found it kind of at a weird time when, when the movie was, you know, kind of uh, cinema non grata to Disney when they didn't want anything to do with it whatsoever. Right. They still don't, you know, but, uh, so that I kind of got into it in a weird time, but just go with the flow, you know? It's funny what you say about, uh, about, you know, Disney really not having want much to do with it. Cause one of the things that, uh, I was today when I was thinking about this episode and, and how I wanted to try to form it, I, I thought a lot back to our coverage of Tron, you know, the original Tron and how we did that episode and trying to draw parallels, you know, with not only the movie, but, you know, the novelization and the comics and toys and all that. And it suddenly occurred to me, I could be wrong, but I don't think that there was ever a hint of the black hole in the theme parks where at least Tron got a little bit of something. And uh, you, are, you, know, so you just, are correct. There's never been any black hole stuff in the in the parks. Yeah, the the only there was there were plans to make some sort of that I I found a painting that I have somewhere of a black hole ride. Oh. It, looked, it looked like um the um the Toy Story one, the Buzz Lightyear one, where you shoot at things. That would have been cool. Because um, I was thinking the the part where the where the asteroid or whatever those space ball things are supposed to be, where it <laughs> crashes into the ship and rolls down the corridor, I could just balls. see that being a part of a of some sort of ride or or something to do with uh, the black hole in the parks. I could so, just I can picture what, that. You know what's odd is I I actually just misspoke. You you mentioning the main corridor meteor as that shot was was called during production again. Reading Cinefantastique, you know what the, what they call each each right. effect shot. The main the main corridor meteor uh, on the original version of Journey into Imagination, the original one that was full of figment in uh, Epcot. Uh huh. The in the uh, what was it called? The Imaginarium or or whatever the 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 post show where you could go and just play in the giant right. playground for a while. Right. They had a they had a, a thing where. It would, they would get like six or seven kids, and you would stand in front of the blue screen, and they'd do a chroma key, uh-huh. and they'd put you in an adventure. And one of them was a Western one, and then another one was a science fiction one. And in the science fiction one, at one point, one of the things that you were standing in front of was the main corridor meteor with the giant meteor rolling down at you. Oh, that's cool. And, and you had to run in place, and then they would slide the chroma key, and you would run off the screen away from the meteor. <laughs> They didn't make it, you know, there's no mention of the black hole. You know, you're not specifically on the signal, right. but it used the footage, you know. <laughs> what do we say? Disney never lets any, never lets anything go to waste. There you go. Yeah, exactly. 
the only thing I I have from you know the parks or anything is uh, there was a recent pin set that was the alphabet. So there was one letter per every pin, and for yep. the letter V, it's Vincent. And mm-hmm. uh, so I kept that. I was what I don't keep very many pins for myself, you know, that because we do the pin trading, you know, as cast members. But I kept that one because it was like, wow, I've never seen a black hole pin right. ever. And now, Vincent's why, cool, you know. I like Vincent, so I kept that one. But I mean, what was what was the problem with it? Did it not make? I don't remember if it was a big flop. I think it made no, money, I, I think it, it made, it made money. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, I think the the production budget was twenty million, and it, the gross in the theater run was thirty six. But it, it's a similar situation. We we talked about this almost two years ago on uh, talking on Star Trek Monday Monday, talking about Star Trek the Motion Picture. Is that right. It, it was it made money, but it was kind of it was really kind of worked over by the critics. Got a lot of kind of average to to mediocre reviews. It was it no Star like, Wars was the problem, yeah. Exactly, it didn't set the world on fire. Right. Yeah. You know. So it it, it, it it's kind of like in modern business. You know, it's funny. I was just talking to somebody about this the other night. But in modern business, some company will make 80 gazillion dollars in profit but because they projected making 82 gazillion dollars in profit then they failed you know that that's how they perceive it and i think that it's yeah the, heads will roll you yeah know. so with the black hole and tron even though they both made money and you know gathered a a fan following and achieved a certain cult status and all that because they didn't meet whatever the the project, well, because basically they weren't the next, you know, the next thing after Star Wars, then they were perceived by the company as as being failures somehow, and that's really a shame. But uh, my my own origin story, I, I have like vivid memories and then kind of vagaries about the specifics, but I vividly remember going to this movie with my mother and father, which is actually really odd for a science fiction movie because I'm almost positive my mother never saw a single Star Wars movie in the theater. You know, I can't really remember very many science fiction movies I ever saw with my mom, but I remember us going and seeing this one, and I kind of wonder if maybe it was because it was a Disney film. I really don't know. I know that it was released around... Well, it was released December 21st, 1979. Well, that's weird because that's my sister's birthday. But we may have seen it around Christmas time, maybe. I, I'm I'm not really sure. But I do know that I, I took my uh, handy-dandy old clunky tape recorder with me, and I tape recorded, you know, audio recorded the movie. Uh-huh. But the batteries gave out, like, right at the big finale, you know, like when the meteors were coming in and all that. So I... So I everything never... sped up in the, no, in just, the audio? It's, that's what's it just weird. Died. It, it didn't. Yeah, it just actually just died. It didn't do the typical, you know, speed up and sound really silly type of... It just conked out. So I, I had a lot of the, mem- you know, the movie memorized up to a certain point, you know. But uh, it had been... I, I just watched this today. I'm actually off a of fresh viewing today. I can't remember the last time I watched this, but uh, I was pleasantly surprised how well I thought the movie held up and I didn't have a single groan until the robots showed up and it was when the robots showed up, which is a good, probably what 20 minutes into the movie, you know, up to that point I was like, wow, this is really going along pretty well. But as soon as you see the the robots for the first time, I was just like, Oh, by by robots, do you mean the sentries? The, uh, the stormtrooper looking, 
I'm yeah, looking the, at the, the Sentry yeah. robots. Yeah. Actually, you know, I don't, I don't mind the, the Sentry robots because, you know, first of all, one thing that's interesting about the Sentry robots is that um, they were all played by minds because they had to be able to move in precise uh, manners because they couldn't really see. And, uh, and, and uh, who they, the gentleman who plays Captain Star was actually, he was the head choreographer. So that's why he got to play Star, because uh, he had all the century uh, choreographed. And, and I, don't, I don't mind them so much, because, I, I, you know, they're, they're, they look, thematically I can see the connection between them and Maximilian, as far as looking, uh, you know, I, I think they look pretty neat, but of course I'm, I'm, I've drank the Kool-Aid, so I may not be the most um, uh, objective observer. The, the biggest groaning for me is, has always been Old Bob, because what they did to make yeah. Old Bob was they took a, uh, they basically they made a clay sculpture of uh, Vincent and just made him like rounded on the top and stuff, and then they took a two by four and just smacked the clay to make him dented and beat up, which is why it never really looks like the way metal would be dented and broken up. Right. It looks a little too smooth. And I, that always, I always have kind of, ever since I, I read that, I'm like, yeah, I can see it. It looks like, it doesn't look like metal. And that, that always kind of annoyed me a little bit. Uh, the thing with but him that I caught right, this... The movie, does, the movie does hold up well, I think, because it's, you know, it, it's not... I, th- I think it's the parts that work well are the parts that it was trying to do. Uh, was, it's kind of core, what it was shooting for. The stuff that doesn't yeah, work is kind of right. the, the side stuff. Really, I mean, I, I made a lot of notes, but really the only thing I had on here that I would consider a, a, a bitch or a complaint were those those particular robots. I just, I, I kind of realized this time that one of the things that bothered me besides they're, they're just being very gort-like and very stiff and, you know, walking with the whole stiff-legged gait and all that, was that they kind of look like like C-3PO bodies with sort of a proto Darth Vader head. And that kind of bothered me because that goes back to the criticism about it trying to ape Star Wars. I I really don't think it was trying to rip off Star Wars or, or whatever, but, you know, like we'd said before, I, I think that the fact that it was in production and still in production when Star Wars came out and was such a huge splash, I, I think that somewhere along the line there may have been some... You know, some influence, somebody at, at Disney saying, you know, you need to put a little more Star Wars into this or something like that. Yeah. And those those may have been the clunky elements of the movie. But, you know, for as much as I got to be honest, I think those robots kind of suck. And I agree with you about old Bob, by the way, because I, I don't know why I never noticed this before. Or maybe I forgot if I did notice it before, but he's got a lot of wires just kind of sticking yeah. out all over the place. And I would think. You know, he's beat to hell, he's really clunky, he's broken, he's got all these wires sticking out all over the place, yet he can still hover around and fire lasers. That seemed a little bit weird <laughs> to me. You know, and he seemed like he seemed like he was working just fine, except he was all all banged up and everything. Yeah. I was just gonna I'm, say an interesting uh, uh, talking about the, the sentry robots is that originally they had a different design and they had large backpacks. And the backpacks were there as a kind of a cheat to allow a uh, fresh air circulator so uh. that the side could stay cool. But then um, Battlestar Galactica came out, and all the Cylons had big backpacks. 
And they said, no, no, you can't have backpacks on your robots. They're going to say we're ripping off Battlestar Galactica. So that's why they redesigned the masks. That's why they have the slits in the eyes and such, so to allow some fresh air to get in. So they had to lose the backpacks, and they got the, the slits in the eyes. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> See, when I was when I was a kid, I didn't like old Bob, and I love old Bob now. But that's just because his voice is slim pickings. Yes, and I, uh, I love I, slim I, I don't I don't like the way Bob looks, but I love old Bob as a character. Right. And, and, and when I was a kid, <laughs> I didn't appreciate the Roddy McDowell aspect of it as much, and I was like, well, you know, Vincent was almost as if they took C three PO and R two D two and combine them into right. one robot. It right. was the compact cuteness of R2-D2 with the the eyes that pop in and out. It's funny and, you mention R2-D2. And the voice of, R2, of C-3PO, the I, prissy English yeah. voice. I had a note here that Vincent's EVA is a good 20 years ahead of R2-D2's EVA in uh, Phantom Menace. I, I felt that yeah. that was worth pointing out because I always loved that sequence. And, and, I, and, even as, and that EVA, just look, it still looks good. I mean that the whole sequence with the Palomino and the and the black hole at the at, which opens the film. I mean, uh, the the DVD is too is too clear in certain shots. It's in so far as um, uh, wires, you know, which you just can't, on DVD yeah. you just can't help it. And and there's one there's one shot where I can see mat lines in this movie now on DVD, which is the probe ship coming back from the black hole. But mm-hmm. look at that scene with the Palomino. And there's so many elements going on in any, any one shot between the miniature of the Palomino, the matte painting of the star field, the optical effect of the black hole, and they're all composited together, and they just work. And, and it doesn't look like, like a model. It, looks, has, it has mass and depth. And that EVA shot with the little, uh, with the little Vincent model, it's cut with the full-scale Vincent, and it just looks great. Yeah, I agree. I and, really and I'll like be honest, when I saw the Phantom Menace, that I thought the same thing. I was like, oh, he's, they're they're EVAing like like Vincent. <laughs> and then the two the two droids get shot off. I'm like, well, Vincent did a hell of a better job than you guys did. I'm telling you. <laughs> but for all my uh, my all my not really caring for the the robots, the other robots, Maximilian is the shit man i yeah. love maximilian and i that i can remember i actually had a toy of him i, I want to say it was like a die cast figure if i remember right i know it was made of some kind of metal and all the little oh. wings and things moved and it had the little arms with the blades and all that i have no idea how big well, it was or... put out Vigo put out a a uh, like a large scale like a 12 inch line and a three and three quarter inch line and there was a uh, maximilian with metal metal wingtips and limbs, at least, in the three-and-three-quarter-inch line. That must so have been it. Migo did put out toys for him, so. Yeah, he was awesome. I and, still and think one he's thing, cool in this. Maximilian is, is just a great robot because, you know, we, we, we've been talking about how uh, Vincent is, in a lot of ways, kind of a, you know, he, he's an evolution of the, of the idea of the cute robot that we got with R2-D2 and C-3PO in Star Wars. Well, Maximilian is the exact opposite. You know, he's only vaguely humanoid. He's menacing. Every, every, and I, I love the way that his, his head is animated because anytime he's leaving or someone's behind him, he turns and glares at them. Like he's perpetually pissed off. Yes, right. or, he's, or he doesn't want to, and he doesn't want to turn his back on them either. Yeah. 
He's got and, a distinct personality, you know. Yeah, he, 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 and I mean, uh, Vin, you know, Vincent calls him a monster, and that's exactly what he is. You know, he, he may be a robot, but at the same time, he's, he's, he's this un, and it's completely inhuman monster. And, uh, you know, yeah. so just any, anytime he's on the screen, that's who you're paying attention to also. Yeah. You know, at least, at least I, I mean, him, if it's, well, him or Reinhardt, you know. But uh, actually, what's funny is that I don't think it's still there, but at the, uh, at the Disney, what used to be the Disney MGM Studios, now the Disney Hollywood Studios, on their Backlot Special Effects Tour, there was a room you would go in where they would do some kind of demonstration, usually of audio animatronics or some other effect that had, they had used in a movie recently. The last time I went on this was right when 101 Dalmatians 2 had come out, so it was some kind of AA horse that I could really care less about. Right. But uh, it's, 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 it's literally a horse's ass because it was a horse that did a, that did a, a, a mule kick, and I'm like, wow, I don't care. So I just start looking around at all the props that are all these old school Disney props lining the walls and ceiling, you know, because it looks like a warehouse. And they've got all the old audio animatronics from World of Motion and Horizons and all that sort of stuff just kind of stuck in there in storage. Well, in one corner was Maximilian. No way. I swear to God, it was the full scale Maximilian because I saw it and I got freaked out for a second. I'm like, oh, wait, it's just a prop. And then, sure enough, right next to him is the 14-foot-long Cygnus. Oh. And, like, are you kidding me? I'm like, they're so, they're like, and, they're, and they're like 20 feet in the air, so you can, just, you can see them, but you can't really look at them. And I'm like, I would, I, would, I would give anything right now not to be hearing about an audio animatronic horse's ass and looking at some of the greatest <laughs> models ever to be produced by the Walt Disney Company. Uh-huh. And, and it just drove me bonkers. But in, I tell you what, in person, he looks just as imposing because he, you don't realize that he's like eight feet tall and, and about four feet, five feet wide. He's just broad, and it's like, wow, that is, a, that is an awesome-looking robot. <laughs> and, you know, it's a, and menacing. There, I, I read an article talking about the black hole that it said that this film has a very strong cult following, which seems to be primarily made up of children who were scared of Maximilian when they saw it in the theater. Right. Oh, I can buy that, <laughs> totally. I can totally buy that. Well, this was a Disney movie, but people get offed pretty horribly in it, you know. <laughs> or Horrible things happen to people in this movie. <laughs> this was the first uh, Disney-produced film that got a PG rating. And this is back in the days before PG-13, but this was the first one not to get a G rating that was produced in-house. They had distributed another film that they didn't have anything to do with the production that ended up with a PG. But between, um, you know, Maximilian murdering Dr. Durant you know, and, and, and then throwing it onto the power plant, you know. Right. And then when the, the revelation right before that about what Reinhardt has done to the crew, I mean, that to me is worse than killing Durant because, you know, Vincent runs him through, or excuse me, Maximilian, it'd be funny if Vincent ran him through, Maximilian <laughs> runs him through, and it's, it's pretty bloodless, but, you know, when, when Durant pulls the mask off the humanoid and you see that it's a person, and, you, and then it dawns on you that, you know, when Captain Holland was walking through the quarters and you saw how many people were on their ship, and that, you know, and then you put two and two together with, uh, with, the, with the humanoids, and it's like, oh, my God, Reinhardt murdered everyone on this ship and turned them into, you know, cyborgs. 
Right. Yeah, he basically right. like lobotomized them all, ba- ba- space lobotomized them all, and yeah, space them into s- <laughs> slaves. And, like you know, and like, you're right. For a Disney movie, you're like you just you, you can't. It's like wow, that's just amazing. Well, I remember it being all over the news. I mean, it it was a huge deal about the fact that this movie had swearing in it. And I mean, I don't think they ever say anything worse than like, you know, what the damn. hell? Yeah, it's it's all hell and damn. But that was yeah. still a huge. I can distinctly remember there being, you know, like nightly newscasts that would be like, you know, what would Walt Disney say today about blah blah blah? And you know, as as distance as I was from all that as a kid, it's funny that I can really remember that very vividly. That there was a there was quite the stink made about that. Swearing's a lot bigger deal when you're a kid, you know. You yeah. notice it. You notice it, and it's like a lot funnier or a lot, you know. It's yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember noticing that uh, when I was a kid, you know. And when I was, I I did notice it watching it now, and and noted that it was like, oh, that's pretty unusual, you know. Right. It's not unusual today, but you know, trying to think of it in context, it was. Um, See, I, I like yeah. the, that you guys let off this discussion with the comparisons with 20,000 Leagues because I, I think that that, for me personally, is, is very inescapable because Reinhardt really, really calls me back to Nemo from you know the, the Disney filmed version of 20,000 Yeah, he's way more unhinged than Nemo. Yeah, Nemo, Nemo has way better and you know seems to have better intentions and you know he nemo like will cause collateral damage to good guys you know but he's not purposely you know the the reinhardt doesn't care about any about people basically at all he's interested in in getting into that you know going doing something that nobody else has done before you know and basically inflating his ego into cosmic uh, literally cosmic proportions now i was just thinking it, it's also very interesting i think that i think this movie serves as a as a wonderful bridge between the old extant disney of the time that was still churning out movies that were very much like Twenty Thousand leagues you know done in that that kind of disney house style and then just a couple of years later we would get tron and I see this movie as being this weird amalgam of the two. You know, it's 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 like it's right on the cusp of the future, yet still very much made and produced in the in the old kind of even at that time kind of dated Disney style, right down to the the cast. I mean, you look at the cast, and if it weren't for the for the cutting edge special effects, this movie could be happening in the fifties because they have that very you know disney 50s live action look you know what i mean i i think yeah, well, Ernest I mean, uh, the only one that doesn't <laughs> yeah well and you know uh uh to, to two points first off uh scott you're talking about um that this film still even though it has a lot of cutting edge technology was still uh, clearly a product of the old studio system mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways you're absolutely right because this was one of the last films before the rise of because you got to remember Industrial Light and Magic had only been around for, what, four years at, at this point? Three years right. by the time this film was released? So the rise of the third-party special effects house, that happened in the 80s. 
right. seven, at, at this point in the 70s, everything was still done in-house. I mean, it was, remember, it was a big deal for Star Trek The Motion Picture to have Douglas Turnbull and all them working on it as a third party that weren't associated with, uh, with Paramount. Um, and so this film was, at, uh, like you say, a combination of the old school and the new school because the, uh, when Dykstra created the Dykstra Flex camera for use on Star Wars, uh, you know that the which which was the programmable motion control camera, which would allow you to do repeated passes of the same the same movement, so you could photograph multiple elements to composite into a shot. Um, Disney had originally wanted to rent the Dykstra Flex from Industrial Light and Magic to shoot the the uh, the space shots in the black hole, but that they wanted Dykstra pretty much wanted to protect his his uh, creation because he was then going to be using it on Battlestar Galactica and a couple other projects. So Disney got um, Peter Ellenshaw to basically build a better one, which right. was the ACES, which is the, what a minute, what is it? Automated com- camera something system. I forget the exact acronym, but ACES yeah. at the time was the most advanced motion control camera in the world. Disney had the most technologically advanced special effects department of any studio in Hollywood because of this film for a couple of years. But at the same time, it was still done with all their in-house production guys. You know, it was shot on Disney sets. You know, it was all, um, you know, it was their, their, their team of art directors and carpenters and, you know, just uh, all, everything was just done, you know, just old school. And, and in a way, much like, uh, in my opinion, the Star Wars films and, uh, other big effects films in this era, like Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1941 and so forth, why they hold up better is because because they were done in-house, these were guys that had a vested interest in how good this stuff looked and put their, their absolute best creative energies into making this stuff look good. Yep, you know, and that, then it was up for the screenwriters. Then it was usually the screenwriters that would fall short. 90% yeah. of the time in these days when you heard critics bitching, they were like, the special effects are pretty. You know, yeah. you very rarely heard people saying, well, those crummy special effects, you know, it was mostly griping about. Up to this day, it's still the same way, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and then getting back to your point, Chris, about, uh, or one of you guys' points, I'm sorry, about uh, Reinhardt and Nemo, um, you know, it, it's very clear from the first flyby that the uh, Palomino does of the Cygnus, that the Cygnus is, is the Nautilus in space. You know, this idea of a, of a, a Victorian-styled, you know, lattice and grillwork um, spaceship was unheard of. And, and, and it's never really been repeated with the same level of elegance that the Cygnus was put on screen. Uh, a lot of the original production work, which uh, some of which I, I've, I've scanned from Cinefento Steak and I'll clean up and I'll post uh, once this episode goes live, um, had the traditional kind of slab-sided spaceships that we were used to seeing, uh, especially in the wake of Star Wars. But uh, Ellen Shaw, uh, you know, it was just pushing the idea to make it something that looked different. That's why it looked so so kind of gothic. And, you know, then, of course, one of my favorite lines in this is uh, uh, Reinhardt, when he first meets the crew, he says, they look a bit medieval, but then again, I'm a romantic. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you know it's, it's, what what I mean that's Nemo right there you know it's right. playing uh, Nemo playing uh, you know the organ in his in his big right. uh, in his chamber and then everybody hosting dinner in the sitting room it's like well what do we do we have dinner in the sitting room uh, serve, serving you know organic uh, vegetable soup by humanoid robots 
on a with chandeliers and and wine goblets and fresh fruit on a on a spaceship. It's like, and he and he calls Dr. McCray Miss Kate or the Young Miss because he's a gentleman, you know, and he wouldn't presume to call her anything but Miss. Even like, though he's even though he's lobotomized her father and <laughs> and he's going to do the same to her, <laughs> right? <laughs> but he's a gentleman. <laughs> he's a psychopath, but a gentleman. Yeah, man, I've always wanted my own Nautilus, but I would rather have I would rather have a Cygnus. Oh my God! Yeah, I just love this spaceship. It's it's beautiful. It's it's what it's one of the things that'll. It, that if a movie's going to capture your imagination and you're going to like it your whole life it's it's one of the things for me that it's got to have besides a story that draws me in is um you know a visual look or an environment that makes you interested in it that makes you want to see more of it that makes you want to you know that I would love to just see I wish there was a black hole video game you know, or whatever, you're running around the Cygnus shooting robots or whatever, but it would be fun just to, to walk, to travel through that space. I love how it's laid out, you know. I love the way, I love the giant control, you know, master control oh, yeah. room bridge of it, you know, with a view of the black hole over, that's, you know, in the... That's, that's the best shot in that film, too, when they, uh, the crew takes the elevator up to the control room and they step out of the elevator and the camera pans with them and then pulls back and we see that all of the humanoids sitting at their control desks and the giant screens and then the, the view out the front where you not only see the uh, the bow of the Cygnus but then you see the black hole off to the right and it's like there's, there's a lens flare in there that's actually a real, that was a physical light when they did the, the initial shot, the live action shot and it's like all of that comes together beautifully and you look at that, and it's like it's like they built a set. It's yeah. not like that that, yeah. that set goes about four feet in front of the actors, and the rest is matte paintings and right. set shots. Right. Because, oh my God! And it's and, you, and it just the scale of that is amazing. And and you know with the matte paintings, this this had more matte shots in it than Star Wars and Empire combined. Yeah, well, well over a hundred. Yeah, it was. I think it was like a hundred, like one hundred and twenty-five, hundred and thirty, something like that. It was. A, it was a lot. Yeah, when, Star when Wars most, had like twenty-one, and then this one had. Uh, uh, it was over a hundred. Is I, I know that yeah. much. It was. It, yeah, it was. It was some ridiculous number when you consider the, like you said, that Star Wars had twenty-one. But then you start thinking about it. It's like not only every time we see out the front and we see, you know, the bow of the ship or we see the black hole. Not only that are mats, but then just about every single set. Is extended with a mat. Right. You know, when when Harry goes when Harry goes into the uh, the hydroponics garden, the majority of that set is a painting. Right. And it and it looks like it's a standing set, and it's amazing. It really is. Well, that's what I that's what I love about that movie, and what's great that it's it very much another um, movie that it reminds me of is uh, Forbidden Planet, and its look and and the sort of feel to it. And uh, it's an, another movie that relied, especially in those days, a lot on, on matte paintings. And a, a good matte painting is can be a beautiful thing and can totally be as, if not more, um, realistic, quote-unquote, than, you know, CGI or, or an actual object or whatever. But right. um, 
there's just there's not just from all the matte shots but just the whole design you know production design and visual feel of the movie is very painterly and uh space is very aquatic it's not yeah. just bl- dark black space with a few dots in it it's it's like you're in the middle of a of a you know nebula or something there's there's a, there's a milkiness to it and then you've got the black hole which looks like a dr- you know the drain at the at, at, on your <laughs> bathtub or something you know it's got a very which adds to the the whole captain nemo you know 20,000 leagues yep. under the sea well you know when when luke was just talking about you know the part where they where they reach the conning tower and the bridge and everything and see that it reminded me very much of when nemo opens the iris for the first time and lets mm. you yes. see out into the ocean and that scene you know there was that other parallel with you know as luke was saying the dinner scene was very much the same thing you know there's a I'm, if i remember the dinner scene correctly in 20,000 leagues he does the same type of thing you know he opens an iris while they're sitting there eating that lets you see out you know to the ocean and it was and just i, I love this one he had a window he had a window that yeah. was uh you know facing the black hole and another thing that just struck me is is space in this is usually in movies is a deep black and this it's really a dark dark, dark blue. blue yeah yeah uh, you know there's a lot of blue in this movie you know there's there's just sort of a blue white light on everything so it's all blues and reds, you know. It's all it's all blues in the first like uh, three fourths of the film, and then it starts turning red as uh-huh. it gets to the end. Uh, one of my notes here is everything turns red. Uh, everything everything's gone red when they uh, when they start pulling in right pretty much from the meteor shower through to the end of the film. Everything is very red, and and Which that is... I, that contrast where you know the, to me it, it's kind of tied a little bit with the narrative because. You know, when, when things are kind of doing their slow build, you know, it's a ghost ship and uh, mysterious uh, robots and, you know, the, the madman captain, you know, it's, it's kind of that blue tone. And then after uh, they rescue Kate from the hospital and now the sentries are out to kill them and Mac and uh, the Reinhardt's going to fly through the black hole, now things start turning red and then the meteor showers, the meteors themselves are orange red. And then once you get up close to the black hole, it goes from that inky blue... Uh, violet sort of color to that fiery red and then everything is red when you're in the, the eye of the black hole right in down to the probe the shot of the probe ship going in where everything is red mm-hmm. and one and thing it that's just, it, it, it builds that emotional response one thing that's really nice is to be able to watch this digitally today because um the videotape of this suffered horribly from all that red because red was never done very well on videotape. And when you would get scenes that were entirely red, yeah, you know, it would happen in this movie and like star Trek two during the red alert sequences and stuff, it would just look, you know, it would, it would overpower the, the, the video basically. And it would give it this weird distorted, you know, uh, blobby effect. So watching this again, you know, because I'm sure the last time I watched it was on, you know, videotape. I think that was one of the reasons why I walked away from this going, wow, this holds up really good and looks really good with the special effects is because you don't get that blobby redness. It's it's the, you know, crystal clarity of the digital format. I really like that. Yeah. And actually, the, the in the red sequences, one one shot that uh excuse me, that uh, does look a lot cleaner now on, on digital as, a, 
excuse me again, as opposed to um, on video, is when um, after they after the main corridor meteor when they're still running, they're running across the catwalk, and Maximilian pops out right in front of them where they've got to go, and then he shoots Bob, and uh, the the crew runs the other way, and the, it's the fight between Vincent and Maximilian. Right. Well, you know, Vincent ducks around the corner, and Max just blasts through the wall. Right. And I always love that. Where he, just, he just goes right through the wall. It's like, you know, how, how does a machine have rage, first off? And, and second off, you know, he just, just blam, just goes right through it. Well, now that, that scene is bathed in red, and now it just looks so much sharper with him just tearing right through that, uh, that, that separator wall. And you're right. And on video, it was a little bit washed out, a little oversaturated on red, whereas now it just it just looks it just looks otherworldly. The whole um, you know sequence with the with the red filter on everything. But I always loved that shot. I I used to play on uh, uh, Quake Two, which is probably about the last first person shooter I had good enough reflexes to play. You could um, <laughs> want to could always you could customize what your character looked like to the other players on the map and i always played as maximilian oh that's cool you know it's a shame that there wasn't ever a black hole video game i can see this being easily adapted to a really good video oh yeah well chris was saying it before just just run through shooting stuff yeah i mean it pretty much writes itself here and you'd have some stages where you got to play as vincent you got to do like a puzzle or something you know now you know there will be a, a black hole video game but it'll probably be based on the remake that they're yeah, that they're doing, and and Would... and you know what, I I did not see Tron Legacy, so I cannot comment one way or the other on on Tron Legacy. Uh, I have no opinion because I haven't seen it. But going from just the way that Tron Legacy, the way that it looks, the way that um, it was advertised, the way that it was hyped, compared to what the original film is, my concern as a black hole fanboy, and I don't mind calling myself that because. You guys can't see it. I'll hold it up to the microphone here. I've got uh, a bunch of black hole merchandise surrounding me. I've got oh, the trading cool. <laughs> card set. I've got um, I've got the three of the four published issues of the Whitman comic because black hole number four is damn near impossible to find. I've <laughs> got the uh, gold key. I used key to have it. Number four. Yeah. Oh. When I was a kid. Yeah. yeah I was sure say, did. Number four. Number four commands some pretty good bucks if you can find it. <laughs> But uh, but I've got I've got I've got the the Disney read along which some kind soul was nice enough to put up on YouTube. So if you do black hole read along, you can actually read along with with the story on YouTube. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm a, so I'm you know I'm a black hole fanboy. I don't mind saying that. But what about my the bed sheets? Is the bed sheets I do not have. But <laughs> I just put I just I'm just watching on eBay now the little golden storybook. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I figured that'll be a good one for for the little guys. And uh, and a, and a 500 piece puzzle set of uh, Reinhardt and Ma- and Maximilian. You know uh, what? I, I wish I had known all this earlier because just today I finally got off my lazy ass and sent your books out in the mail. <laughs> Somewhere I don't know where the hell they are, but I know I still have them. I have a set of black hole stickers that I oh. think you had to send away for, like through cereal or something. I mean, because I, I know they don't go to like a sticker book. They they're they're like right. postage stamp uh, style mm-hmm. stickers. I'm pretty sure you had to get them out of cereal or something like that. Yeah. I've had them all these years, and I mean, they just keep going from like box of shit to box of shit. So if I yeah. come across 
again, I'll, I'll pass them your way because uh, I think you would cool. appreciate them. Yeah, but, but my, my main concern is that they'll try to take the black hole and take it from what is, you know, a science fiction adventure with a bit of a hard approaching horror edge and mm-hmm. turn it into a flashy action movie. And I don't think that this story works as a flashy, slam-bang action movie. You know, that no. there's, there's action elements, but really this is an adventure. And, and you can't just have, you know, if, if you have a, a Cygnus being all, you know, flashy and, and looking like, uh, like something totally modern and all that, and, and, you know, Maximilian as this big CG monstrosity, I think that takes away from... Uh, what the you know it, it takes away first off from what it is that Reinhardt has done, which is you know an atrocity, and it takes away from the more uh, contextual elements of the film and the more metatextual elements of the film, and I I personally would not like to see that happen. I think that's the most diplomatic way I can say that. So. Uh, you see, I I I like Tron Legacy. It was the director's first movie. Um... There was subtext and stuff to it, but I would like to see, like, it was funny in the Comics Monthly Monday last last week, we were talking about Kenneth Branagh directing Thor. I would like to see a Kenneth Branagh type of director do uh, do this movie. You know who you know who I would like to see do this. Uh, um, now I'm go- now I'm gonna forget his name. The guy who did um, Twenty Eight Days Later, Danny Boyle. Mm-hmm. Danny Boyle would, uh, I think do it justice because to me this is a movie that could it could be re- remade because it needs an to me it needs a new ending it, it, yep. it, the, the ending was just completely ridiculous it was sort of a cop-out let's try to get something for put some stuff to, for people to talk about in it but it was kind of cheesy cop-out weird heaven and hell sort of thing towards whatever but you know i think this could be a great like freudian melodrama where and i and I, we had a uh I, I think this is what got the whole ball rolling as we were talking about the remake of this on one of the forums and fact, uh, i think it was actually the tron legacy forum yeah and and i just think uh you know if they if they set up some some you know this is this would all be under the surface stuff but you know set up the whole you have the whole drama of you i would use the cygnus as the personality of the the dark personality that's the evil of the movie and with with reinhardt representing its ego maximilian the id and all the crew that's lobotomized being sort of like the super ego yeah right and and uh and then you'd have this whole like you know Freudian daughter thing because you've got McCray's, you know, coming there. You know, she's expecting to find out what happened to her father. So there's that whole dynamic, and and all that was sort of going on in this Disney movie. You know, it 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 makes it real. It's kind of soap opera-y, but it it gives it a it gives it a lot of weight and uh, melodrama. And the actors and actresses were all up to, you know, all A grade and up to pulling it off you know and they right. and they did and but it could be it could be it could be improved upon but right damn you got i you know i'm afraid of what they're gonna do with this if the cygnus you know i it's almost like 
Uh, I don't know, because uh, when we were doing that post, I was of the opinion that this movie was a lot more flawed than mm -hmm. I think it is now after watching it again. Yeah. And uh, so now I'm a little more afraid of the the remake not being being that good. You know what right. I mean? No, I know exactly what you mean. It's fun. It's really funny that you say that because I, I was going to say something very similar a few minutes ago that when we talked about that before, I, I think one or the both of us came right out and basically said, yeah, go ahead, remake the black hole. It's kind of cheesy. You know, it, it was okay, but you know, we're not really that attached to it, but you know, I, I got to retract that statement after rewatching it. I'm like, wow, I hope they don't fuck this up. Cause this was actually a really good movie. You know, I enjoyed I, it. I really did. I mean, my, my only I did too. quibble was, uh, with, was with the robots. I mean, it really, I, for some odd reason, my recollection of this movie was that it had not dated well, that it was really cheesy and the effects were shit and all that. And I, I, I'm actually ashamed that I felt that way because after watching it just now, I mean, I really think it holds up. Definitely beautifully. not the case. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it's not. I mean, there, there were a couple little wonky things with the effects, but most of that was actually wire work. Like, yeah. um, not not to criticize what you were talking about, Luke, but like the part where you were talking about with with um, Maximilian smashing through the wall, it looks yeah. really cool. But at the same rate, I, I guess it's just my movie eye. I could tell exactly how they did it, which was right. they swung the model on like a wire, smashed it through yeah. the wall, and then well, used... Well, because you can see the way the momentum is. Exactly. You know, and, and that's yeah. not really a criticism so much as it's just you, you can kind of tell. You know what it's I mean? Yeah, it's it's a double-edged sword because now that the shot is more clear, that's much right. more evident. Right. Versus on the VHS where it was fuzzier and you couldn't you couldn't tell as much, but you couldn't see it as well. So you you know you take the good with the bad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I, I tell you, one one thing I did in prep for the show today was um, I don't know if either of you guys are familiar with a, a TV series. And Luke, I know that you would really really like this if you can get a, a, your hands on it. There was a, a series of documentaries. It was like a documentary show that used to be on, uh, I think it was on Disney Channel, but it was back in the 80s. It was called the Disney Family Album. And it was a, a series of episodes about basically people behind the scenes at Disney, like the Nine Old Men or like the Sherman Brothers or people like that. There was one episode that was with Peter and Harrison Ellenshaw. And toward the end of the episode, they really went in heavily into the black hole, which was basically a, a new movie at the time. I think it had just come out when that episode was out. And there's even a shot of uh, Harrison speaking a couple of times where the matte painting behind him is the cubicles matte painting that would be used yeah. in Tron. And he was still working on it at, at the time, which was really cool. But uh that was really neat and, and really gave me a, a, a bigger appreciation for how awesome the mats are in that. And they were showing a lot of the different mats and how they were created and how they were, you know, meshed up with the physical or I mean, with the uh, live action shots and things like that. And they had said that up to that point that that movie was made, that this is the first time that they'd ever worked together, father and son. And I don't think they ever did work together, you know, work together again. So I'm, you know, I bet you that this movie really holds a special place for Harrison because his dad just passed away a couple of years ago. 
Yeah. So I bet you this this is really a big deal for him. But it's neat that they both worked on that movie because you can really see that that marriage of mats and and physical effects and all that. And I think that's one of the reasons the movie does hold up well is again, you know, it's physical effects. And we've talked about that a lot with other movies that we love, like Superman the movie, why they still maintain a a somewhat timeless quality when it comes to the effects, because they had to actually go out and figure out how are we going to make this happen rather than just punch a bunch of a bunch of buttons on a computer, you know, and that computer stuff, I just don't think is aging near as well as the physical stuff. No, because uh, if, if something is in the, in the camera, it'll always look right mm-hmm. in the context. You know, mm-hmm. our, our eyes are, and our brains are far too, too good at spotting something that's not real that exactly. doesn't exactly. have the yeah I mean I remember taking this visual that it was I can't remember what it was for there the, it was some company that was selling d- digital software equipment and they had a you know you know you can't you can't bust our our software thing where they would show you a, a real apple and then they would show you a CG apple and you had to pick it out and they were so cocky about it. They had it set up at some public fair and stuff, and people were whooping them every time because your eye just will pick up the smallest thing that's wrong that's not real. And yeah. uh, I like the way 90% of the special effects, you know, in uh, basically like Scott said, the, especially, mostly the stuff that doesn't involve wire work, Right. And, you know, these days you could use CG to good effect to take out the wires. You know, yeah. that's what CG uh, is really awesome for is taking stuff out, I I believe. Right. Um, yeah. But um, the rest, I love the special effects. I don't I, I wouldn't mind more painterly special. Eff- I wouldn't mind people taking their CG and muddying them up a little bit, making them seem more real, more like they were painted and animated. It looks cool. It, it, it especially in science fiction and stuff like that. It doesn't have to look a hundred percent real. It has to look real within its own world. So if it creates its own world, and that, and you know, CGI is going to work better in Tron's world because it's a world where everything's supposed to be computer generated. So it can look a little wonky. Yeah. But um, yeah, we'll see. I uh, another element that we haven't really touched on that's a huge element to me in this movie is the music. Amen. Yeah. Is John Barry. Really. Yeah. yeah. And again, the the not the overture, but the main theme, the ba ma 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 ma, is very, yeah. very maritime sounding. It sounds like you're on a boat that's going up and down on waves. You know, it's yeah, got but that, and and. But at the same time, it's also very, um, the, the seven-note liet motif, um, not seven notes, but the use of a repeated liet motif is, is very traditional science fiction. Um, I'm thinking, like, again, we keep coming back to this Forbidden Planet, War of the World. Um, I want to say Day of the Earth stood still, but don't quote me on that. You know, that, that, that's a common theme to use that, that motif over and over, and, and, it, and it makes, it, it builds that connective tissue so that when they move away from it, you, you can tell. Um, one of the two, two interesting notes. First off is that this film does have an overture, as I think we mentioned earlier. This was one of the last um, big American films to have an overture, uh, right. along with, ironically, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yep. And, 
And and what's what what's what's funny is that both films don't use their obviously they don't use their main title themes as the overture. Uh, in Star Trek, they use Ilya, Ilya, Ilya's theme, the love theme, and in The Black Hole, they use kind of that heroic theme, is what I refer to the overture music as, which our listeners will be uh, familiar with because it's, as we said, the opening of Two True Freaks. So, That's right. They ripped it off from us, bastards. They, they totally did. They, they edited that other sound out, those other those other dialogue clips. But you know, you got to you, you know on a, on a twenty million dollar movie, you got to save money where you can. Um, Twenty million, nineteen seventy-nine dollars. That is. Uh, the other thing is um, on the trailer for this film. The only trailer I've ever seen is that that three-minute extended trailer, where it starts out with the uh, the grid lines, which uh, are CG. Actually, talking, we were talking about Tron earlier. Um, it starts out with the grid lines and it runs through the cast, and then we get just a sequence of live action where we see Holland and the uh, robots hiding from the sentries and going to rescue uh, Dr. McRae from the hospital. And what's interesting is that that uh, scene in the trailer is actually scored with the uh, the low-key pursuit music, which is the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Right. And not the heroic scene. So if you're used to seeing that the trailer, it comes off as much more... Um, I, I hesitate to use the word dark because it's cliche, but it's more of a, a more a sinister, yeah, more a more sinister sort of situation than the heroic theme where it's da 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 when they bust in and they shoot down all the sentries. Now it's more like kind of a life and death thing almost. And yeah, it, but, and that, and that part was that part I remember and it not ringing true when I was a kid. That was one of the parts that didn't ring true now and as a kid is when. When they're rescuing her and the music's playing and they're shooting, that was me. That was me thinking, ah, oh, this is the Star Wars part, yeah. you know. The mu- the the music actually sounded like it was sort of shoehorned in there at the last. I wonder. Minute. I wonder if the trailer was the original cut and then that edit was done later to put the heroic music in there instead of very the possible, yeah. Because the pursuit music really seems to fit better to the point where the little joke where Holland is grappling with the Sentry, he. he damages the sentry but it's not killed and then the sentry throws him up onto the uh, onto the conveyor and then jumps on top of him and then he goes he, he tries to pistol whip the sentry and he hurts his hand and he goes ow you can you can in, in the trailer you can hear it very clearly because the music is less intrusive whereas in the in the film as it exists you can barely hear the barely hear him say ow so I, I think we yeah, that, that may be true may, that may have been a, a late addition because it, it seems too perfectly cut in the in, in the trailer, you know. Uh huh. And uh, but that but you're right. The the music for this film is um, it it the heroic theme notwithstanding. The, the rest of the film there, there's a lot of little different cuts that are just very haunting and very much like you say the the, the nautical sort of theme once again connection with Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. This is a kind of a and a, this is a almost. It's a swashbuckling sort of thing, but with a with a with a science fiction edge to it, you know. With with the use of the, it's also the first score ever recorded digitally, and not on analog tape. Was the black hole? Oh, that's right. Yeah, I had heard that before. I never knew that. And, and what's interesting also is that this score is uh, very similar in in some ways to the score for Moonraker, which I believe was also John Barry. And also deals with space, and was also released in 1979. So, uh, 
no, nobody's going to say that a composer can't reuse the same themes. Obviously, the themes in The Black Hole are much more uh, prominent than in Moonraker, but certain elements are, are similar. And uh, actually, uh, one of my notes here, just talking about Moonraker, um, both these films are very well developed for using light and darkness in space. It's, yeah, very it's much seen so. in Moonraker where when Bond and Dr. Goodhead are in the Moonraker shuttle and they're coming up on Drax's space station where you don't see anything and then suddenly because it comes around the curvature into the light of the sun, it's just bright. And that is, I think of that when the Palomino is doing their flyby the Cygnus and they cut on the light and it's, you know, it, there's no splashing of light. Where that beam of lumens is hitting is lit. Everything else is dark. Dark, yeah. Yeah. And then when the Cygnus lights up, now we've got these this internal light source and the just the way that it's lit combined with that very deep blue, um, Chris, as you were saying, uh, maritime style star field, it just has this very romantic look to it and it but it looks it's 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 a romantic look but it's still light and darkness in space, you know, the use of silhouette and shadow in 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 an environment where you have very little light sources you know and everything is sourced very well with that mm-hmm. that always that always i mean that's just a great shot when the sickness lights up too you know well, it's funny you were you were drawing a comparison you know with uh with barry's score to being very nautical and all that because while i was listening to the score watching the movie and really lamenting the fact that, man, does this score need an expanded release. I mean, it's never even gotten a proper release on CD or anything, to my knowledge. I know that they put out uh, tracks to it on iTunes a while back that you could, you know, buy and download. But I, I don't think the actual CD or, you know, the actual soundtrack's ever been available on anything but LP, so far as I'm aware. But um, I, I was listening to the music and realizing how much it really sounds like uh, a soundtrack he would do a couple years later to uh, uh, Raise the Titanic, which mm. is another movie I, I always really loved. And I love that movie mostly because of his score. You know, it's it's really good. And it has that same haunting quality to it. Cause, you know, you guys were talking about the, the Cygnus and all and, you know, the gothic look and all that. And something that you know i i I always thought of the movie as as kind of a haunted house in space story but now having finally you know after all these years been to the haunted mansion i kind of see it that way it's almost like a haunted mansion in space yeah so yeah if if in the remake they they were to change that element where it where it wasn't this big creepy spooky haunted mansion spaceship I, i think that would you know change something fundamental about the ship i really like that you know that that very gothic you know creepy air it has to it it really in the and with barry's score you know it just really brings out that that spooky element well it, it's funny that you mentioned the haunted mansion because one of uh, walt disney's quotes about the original haunted mansion was we'll take care of the outside we'll let them take care of the inside right and uh, and you know the sickness it, on, on the outside, it's this, it's, it's this beautiful gothic interpretation of a, of, let's call it Spade of Space, a gothic interpretation of a Star Destroyer, of a giant mile-long spaceship. Uh-huh. But then inside, it's, you know, it's all dark shadows and, and creepy corridors and, uh, you know, um, 
you know, endless uh, tunnels and things like that. And so it's, you're right, it does have that sort of haunted mansion motif. And that ties in with Reinhardt being a gentleman because um, the haunted mansion, actually each of the four haunted mansions have a different um, architectural style. Right. And, uh, and, and the one in Orlando, I want to say, is actually the Gothic style. So that, that, you know, that, that works because we're, we're all East Coast guys. But uh, you're right. And, and, and you know, the, the old, uh, I compare it to the, the old film archetype, the old dark house. You know, exactly. Or, or yes. Ghost and it's, you can't you can't get rid of that element because that that's one of the key uh, key aspects of the film. Chris, you, you talked about that. If you did a remake, the Cygnus would have to be a character. And to an extent, the Cygnus really is a character because every mm-hmm. time somebody goes to a, a different area, it, it's something totally different. And, you know, when when Harry Booth sneaks away, you know, he's there, there, there's a, the, 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 the corridors he goes down and then the hydroponics garden. And then when Colonel, um, Colonel, when Captain Holland finds the crew quarters and the funeral, and it's every corner of the ship has something hidden in it, and it's you know, that it just it's like there's you know, and 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 they've got no idea what's going on. It's it's exactly like you could say like a, like a haunted mansion sort of scenario. I really like that. I, I, that was one of the things that that worked for me then, still works for me now. Is the is it feels spooky and and you just expect something to to jump out at you you know around every corner or whatever it would you know i I like the fact that it spooked the the people in the movie just as much as you know it spooked me watching the movie and i think we need to get back to that i think it's something that we've lost in true uh family entertainment family entertainment nowadays has a connotation of being kid stuff right and the black hole is the the really one of a long line of Disney films that truly were family entertainment, that it was you could watch this with the whole family. You know, there's some elements to it that are obviously bones thrown to the kids, and there are elements that are obviously there for the for the parents, but it's not so scary that a kid can't watch it, but it's got an edge to it, so they're going to be a little scared, and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. You know, to the point that it's actually healthy to be a little bit scared when you're a kid watching movies to help us learn to work it's fun too fear like that and it's fun too because you're right the the endorphins released by fear are very close to the ones <laughs> released by joy that's why you laugh after the scary scene in the movie yeah kids love yeah. scary movies you know i mean the elements of children's entertainment have always the, the the children's entertainment that seems to last throughout the ages is some of the most hor- is some of the most horrific stuff ever you know written down you know or or articulated that's the stuff that survives you know the the fairy tales and the right. and the fables and stuff are, are bloodthirsty but without that bit of menace you know without that bit of menace you know what you get you get the get along gang yeah right the early 80s if you guys remember that you get you know everybody's having a good time and we're all having fun and you know that's fine at certain developmental levels you know, I've, I've, got a, I've got a little guy who's going to be two in a couple of months. So I'm all about everybody getting along and smiling and being happy because developmentally that's where you're at. But by the time you're old enough to start watching and, you know, understanding, you know, uh, more mature storytelling, you, you need that bit of, of that, that edge. Uh-huh. Of, you know, because otherwise it's, you know, what's, what's the point? If, if nobody's in peril, what's the point, really? I mean, from a, from a bare-bones dramatic standpoint. 
Mm-hmm. But you got you guys uh, said on an episode of Star Trek Monthly Monday that you liked when DC had their DC exclusive characters because if you know Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Bearclaw boom beam down to a planet, you know, well, one of them might die. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never understood that. Like seriously, guys. <laughs> We're going to take everybody down to the surface at once, but, you know, that's, again, that's, we're crossing the stream. Somebody's got to die, right? It depends on how many main characters you want to take in, how many people you need to die, but, yeah. <laughs> what what characters do you guys like in this movie? Because there was one that, that I always really identified with that uh, I, I was pleasantly surprised still holds up for me. I still think is my, my favorite character in the movie. Well, I of course identify with Reinhardt. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm gonna identify <laughs> with anybody, I would be Reinhardt. I would have. I would be. I would be like, really? I can have the Cygnus. All I have to do is is give everybody a laser space lobotomy. Yeah, I go tell them I'm gonna give them some laser eye treatment and <laughs> and uh, and we're, we'll go to town. Kind of if fair, I get we're gonna to have... we're gonna wrap your head in aluminum foil first. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> like a baked potato. Like a baked potato. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, um, now now I I I I'm I'm a big fan. Now I forgot that Robert Forster is in it, and I'm a Robert Forster booster because he's a Rochester, Rochester boy. So now which one is he? Is he the captain? He's the captain. He's the he's got a little he's got a little Shatner in him. You know, he's got that 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 burly leading guy quality that he was that's what you were saying earlier about how the cast didn't look like a modern movie right he had he had that leading man quality of you know the sean connery bond era you know the 60s and early 70s rather than the 80s or you know late 70s yeah but uh which i thought was kind of cheesy back then but i you know now i appreciate robert forrester i think I thought all you know what the, what a great cast. The only person who I thought was kind of uh, generic was uh, I can't even remember his name. The blonde guy, Joseph Bottoms. Yeah, who played Yeah, he was just sort of you know he was just sort of the 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 amalgam Han Solo Luke character. I think he even <laughs> you know said yeehaw at some point. See, that's you know? funny because that's my character right there, Charlie Pizer. I always liked him, and I, I always liked him because he reminded me um, a lot of uh, of uh, Johnny Storm somehow. And it's funny, you know, we were talking about all the parallels with uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues. I, I realized watching this toward the end of the movie when when the cast is really pared down through all the deaths and everything. You've got the captain, the ESP girl, Charlie Pizer, and Vincent, and I started to get a serious Fantastic Four vibe. And yeah, I'm thinking, cartoon with Herbie. yeah, if you remember the, yeah, exactly with Herbie. That that was exactly it. So if you if you replace, you know, the Fantastic Four cartoon had Sue Reed, the Thing, and Herbie, because they didn't have the, you know, they didn't want the fantastic or they didn't want uh, the Human Torch in there. But if you replace, <laughs> you know, uh, Charlie Pizer, who reminds me of the Human Torch already, if you replace the Thing with Herbie instead of the Human Torch with Herbie, you basically got those guys because the Captain's very Reed Richards like. You've got the girl with the kind of useless power, you know, the invisible girl. You've got the guy who's kind of the kind of the smart ass guy that has a, a, a sort of love hate relationship with, you know, the, 
well, you know, Vincent's not a monster like the thing, but, you know, the, the non-human character, if you know what I mean. You yeah. know, the Herbie, basically. And I was right. watching that, with the part where they were in the sled, and that's when it really hit me. I was like, damn, this is the Fantastic Four. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> that is a good, that's a good, I never caught that. That's a I never idea. thought that either, yeah. But I always but, thought uh, that uh, Charlie reminded me a lot of Johnny Storm, and I think he would have made a really good uh, Johnny Storm. Well, I, I kind of go with, with Chris here because, you know, uh, Reinhardt is, is just such a commanding character. Maximilian Schell, like I said, he, he, you can look at this in one light and say it's camp, but the other light, it, I, I think it's just a very well-done performance and it's very believable. And, you know, he's this, he's a mad gentleman, you know, he, he's, he's quite insane. I mean, that's clear right from the, the beginning when he says, uh, when, um, Captain Holland says, what happened to the, to the crew? And he says, they didn't make it back. And he said, they did not. He goes, pity, they were such a good crew. You know, it's like right, right there, you, and, he, and he's saying that while he's kind of smiling at, at Kate, and it's like, yeah, this guy's a little bonkers. Mm-hmm. You know? but, and, uh, and I also I like Holland because he's kind of that lantern-jaw Kirk-type figure, uh, like you guys were saying. You know, it's uh, call him off, Reinhardt. You know? it's, right. uh, that's, yeah, I could see Kirk saying that, going and bossing somebody else around on their ship. Yeah. <laughs> hey, but, was it uh, you that sent the, me the link to uh, Goliath Awaits? Are you the one that sent me that link? Oh, Somebody no. sent that to me right after I talked about it in an episode, and I just realized Robert Forster was in <laughs> Goliath Awaits. That's a trip. <laughs> but uh, I, what what's really kind of bizarre to me is the two characters I find myself most drawn to now are are two robots. It's Maximilian and Vincent. Mm-hmm. Maximilian, just because, you know, like I talked about earlier, he's just such an arresting uh, robot character. Um, one of the, you know, a question I asked you guys on the boards uh, when you were taking your questions for your um, a certain upcoming project that I won't spoil, one of the questions I asked you, of all the properties that you guys talk about, what's your favorite robot? That was inspired by thinking about Maximilian because, like I said earlier, he takes this this what had been a growing sort of, archetype of the cute robot and turns it on its ear and makes a robot monster who's not like you know robot monster from robot monster but is is really just a menacing uh commanding figure and then on the other hand you've got vincent who clearly comes from that cutesy robot archetype but he's you know he's kind of a smart aleck um he relates everything back to a metaphor you know, one of my favorite lines in this movie is, uh, I think Pizer says, you know, they say all work and no play. And uh, Vincent says, all sun makes a desert, so the Arabs say. You know, it's, and, and it's just such a well, a good performance by, uh, by Roddy McDowell. It's just so, you know, so kind of smarmy little British guy robot. Mm-hmm. It's just fun to watch. And, and, you know, we, robots from pretty much from the 50s, through, you know, I'd, I'd say the late 90s at least, were kind of, including 3PO and R2 and Vincent and all the robots that we took, we're talking about here, they were kind of built into that gentleman's gentleman, you know, sort of a butler, manservant. Butler. Mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. And, and so they, they have that kind of fastidious, snooty sort of voice to them. It's only now in our, I'm doing air quotes, enlightened uh, modern times that we look at that and say, oh, he's gay. 
You know, and there's, there's no intention there. Roddy McDowell, you know, was the homosexual. Well, that's always been sort of, uh, it's sad, but that's always been sort of like associated to Americans, the yeah. the American ear with the fussy British accent, you know. Right. It's Whereas, just always like, oh, it's kind of effeminate, you know. Yeah, well, the, but the, you know, that that's not the intention. The intention is that, you know, they're, like I said, like they're the gentleman's gentleman, and Vincent is is the gentleman's gentleman to the entire crew. He takes care of the crew every opportunity he gets. When they're on the bridge, uh, on the con tower, he gets right in front of them so that Maximilian can't get anywhere near the crew. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, well, well, he, what's funny is he's portrayed with in, he's got instincts. He instinctively yeah. does not like Maximilian. He and Maximilian are like two like, it's just like you're walking your dog, even your little pug dog. You know, if it comes up to a big Doberman that it doesn't like, it'll start growling and getting right. in its face, you know. And that's Vincent was immediately like, you know, Maximilian might be able to grind me into a thousand pieces, but he gets right up in it. He get uh, he gets right up it up there in his face and gets up in his know. grill, yo, yo, yo. <laughs> and but and, but yeah, but so so it, like now watching it, I I really like both of the robot characters to the point that I really enjoy uh, when they finally get to throw down at the end. And, and I, I do love the gag. It, it is kind of silly, but when Maximilian just puts the squeeze on Vincent and his head pops up all the way and then his hat pops off, I just think right. that's really funny because his eyes are crossed, too, at the same time. Yeah. I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and see, I just... jo- jokey stuff like that, I don't mind, you know. The the shooting gallery is a bit is a bit silly, and, and if I had to cut cheesy, a scene yeah. from the film, it would be the shooting gallery, but... Uh, but you know, Maximilian putting the putting the squeeze on Vincent—that cracks me up. Yeah, I was uh, the shooting gallery thing. It, it always was wrong with with me because there was too much personality put into the sentry robots. Uh, yeah. Even even if it was the captain that had the most personality, they had like uh, leisure time. You know, yeah. I just. Uh, don't picture sentry robots. Leisure time would be like shutting themselves off and plugging into the wall. That's right. what I would think. You know, leisure time would be to that kind of robot. You know, right? And Chris, um, you said you said that you know the elements that don't work are the more Star Warsy elements. That mm-hmm. to me is trying to be like the cantina. Yes. You know? Yes. And and, or, it, or and it really doesn't work. Chess I mean, table. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 there because it's there for relief and it's there to explain where Vincent is. You know, so he can run into Bob, pretty much. It, I mean, it, the, the right. scene is there as a cipher, but there, you could have done that a different way. You know, you could have you could have stuck them in in a regeneration uh, room or something where everybody's shut down. You know, where everybody's just recharging, plugged into the wall or whatnot. And uh, you know, so it's 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 kind of silly. And it's also like, well, why would he keep? You know, why does Captain Star act like a gun sh- like a gunslinger? You know, <laughs> what what purpose does that serve? I mean, I understand that. Reinhardt's a romantic, but you know. <laughs> Once the crew's all about space lobotomized, yeah. What 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 do you? Yeah, you you would think all the well, you would think. I mean, logically, you'd think all those sentry robots have probably been turned off until about half hour before you know. Yeah. Until uh, about exactly when he he you know, saw, knew that he was going to get boarded, then he turned them all on. But it yeah. seems like they've been just running around, you know, doing their duties for. And maybe I don't know. Maybe they do the physical things of running the ship, but I always sort of thought that that was what the human crew is for. And they could have, ex- you know, I mean, the thing about it is it's really creepy in, with the um, with the funeral in space. 
But that's the only point where you see any type of, you know, humanity coming from the, those guys at all. So, you know, well, they, they obviously have that, enough. Well, see, there is that. Well, as far as they have enough time to do the funeral, yeah. <laughs> but, well, the other, the other, of course, is Harry sees the one robot with the limp, which yes. is just kind of subtle. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't address the one really, really glaring technical problem with this film, and and that is that when they're all scrambling for the probe ship, they're in vacuum and they don't have spacesuits on. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, the story behind that is that actually that was addressed in the script, and they had these little um, emergency sort of, they were, I guess, clear plastic, like vinyl-y plastic, um, spacesuits that they would put on before that scene, and they had little dome helmets and stuff, but they looked really stupid, and the crew didn't want to, didn't, uh, the cast just didn't want to use them, so they, they scrapped them. Now, the, uh, the apologist explanation, which is semi-official, actually, is that the black hole has, been, has existed in that spot for so long that it's starting to gather an atmosphere. Which makes absolutely no sense because I don't no. understand. You, can, you can't gather an atmosphere around a null point. You need a body. Well, you can't gather an atmosphere just out of the vacuum of space either. Yeah. No matter how long you've been sitting there, and well, that's the thing. The physics and the the one the articles I've read about the the remake of the black hole. The main thing I've gotten out of it is they're going to use real science with the black hole. And, you know, what would happen inside a black hole or whatever. But the black hole is going to be based on real science. Because basically, if the black hole was based on real science, they would have just been crushed, basically infinitely crushed down to, you know, their their matter would have just been compacted. Right. And and, and one of the... uh one of the uh, European comic adaptation actually uses something, or excuse me, not the European, the, the novelization uses something along those lines. Right. The novelization by uh, Alan Dean Foster. And in that, um, all, the, all matter ceases to exist, and they exist only as um, some kind of basically thought patterns that are kept together because of Kate's uh, ESP powers. Right. Oh, well... <laughs> You know, it's and, funny well, you that know, you caught makes, that part that with makes, the... Uh, that makes more sense, but you don't really pick that up from uh, <laughs> the movie but the at thing all. Is, with the, with, with the, the problem with this was that there was a lot of concern that if the ending was known, that somebody would make a knockoff and rip it off and release it before. And so that, at least that, that was the official line. They didn't have an ending when they were shooting it. They didn't know what would happen when they went into the black hole. Harrison Ellenshaw... Um, suggested the the, the the Sistine Chapel ending, where it would be. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the classic film Powers of Ten, where it just keeps pulling back at Powers of Ten and Powers of Ten. Oh yeah. Where mm-hmm. where it would be. It would start out on Kate's eye, and with Powers of Ten back and further back and further back and further back, and eventually it would pull out of the 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 ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Right where God is reaching down to touch Adam, and it would pull back from that powers of ten until we see Kate standing in the Sistine Chapel looking at it. And, and Harrison Ellenshaw is great. He says the reason why I came up with this is I thought it would be, um, you know, it would get people talking and it would be controversial. Plus, I'd get a trip to Rome. 
right. <laughs> and then and they actually did shoot some shots of the Sistine Chapel, but his father got the trip to Rome and he had to stay in, in Florida, so it kind of backfired on him. Um, but there were all sorts of, of, of rumored endings to this. The Sistine Chapel was the only one that was ever seriously considered besides the heaven and hell, but um, one where they were all turned into bodiless wastes of energy was considered. Uh, there was one where they would um, they would uh, uh, emerge out of the black hole on in, on out of, into a uh, a grain of sand on a beach. There was a rumor that they would emerge out of it into the hand of a giantess. You know, there's all these all these endings that were uh, rumored or considered or, or whatever that were all wildly different than what we got. And it's just you know what really lies beyond the black hole. We don't know. And in the on the the LP, not not the soundtrack LP, but the LP, the story of like they used to do in the in the late 70s, uh-huh. the narrator says actually kind of explains the heaven and hell ending a little bit, and he says that the physical world merged with the mental, and dark images of despair gave way to hope and light. And you know that that again, it, it's about... kind of a dumb, dumbed down explanation of the ending, but it's like well, no, you can interpret it in a million as... different ways. That's about the best way you're gonna. And I mean, it it does the whole, you know, it does the whole. Reinhardt joins with it, you know. There's just sort of this weird thing of Reinhardt joining with Maximilian, and making a sort of devil-like creature in hell. Which okay, that makes sense. But then you basically you sort of see all these like damned souls underneath them, and they look like the the poor guys from the from the Cygnus so right. they get space lobotomies now they gotta go to hell and Reinhardt's still there I mean that's sort of also though a representation of what their life was like on the Cygnus yeah and then you have some I, I don't know who the the angel-y person is but an angel flies over it and then you go back out into space and and that's it and it's sort of a like a 2001 where they're going sort of towards an eclipse planet and it's left open to your interpretation yeah. I think it's a big cop out I always is, had the impression is. as a kid I, and don't ask me where in the world I got this idea from but it strangely it persists and I can't shake it I always had the feeling that inside Maximilian you know, like all the other robots uh, of Reinhardt's are revealed to be his crew that he cyborgized, right? I always had the feeling that Maximilian was too, and that he was actually Kate's father. And the ghost angel thing that you say fly to heaven at the end of was it was him, was her father from... being freed from being enslaved as Maximilian. Again, well, no idea where I get that idea from, but it, it just won't let go of me, you know? I will say that the general black hole fandom does agree with your second point, that the the angelic figure is supposed to be Kate's father. Oh, okay. It's purposefully, it's purposefully left um, androgynous. It's, it's neither male nor female, so they think, of course, because it's not female, it can't be just an angel, it's got to be Kate's dad, you know? But um, I, I like the ending because I like the visuals of it. I really love the visuals of, of the Cygnus, the wreckage of the Cygnus becoming the fires of hell with the, the humanoids because of Reinhardt's actions being damned, you know, and, and the Reinhardt, you know, trapped inside his own evil creation is the king of hell, which always makes me think of, uh, you know, um, 
was it it's Dante's Inferno too. It's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, I which, think which Khan really... said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dante me, ripped Khan, off a lot of shit from Dante <laughs> ripped off a lot of shit from Star Wars and yeah. Star Trek. But you know, so that, so that's the you know that I, I like it from that, but I agree it, it they could have gone with so many other uh, other things. I mean. This ending was was kind of confusing enough as it is. Can you imagine if they had done the Sistine Chapel, and they pulled out and and you know that this was all in God's creation and its finger? I think it's people like, would have laughed out loud. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think that like, would be very much a Tim Burton Planet of the Apes ending. Myself, I don't think I would have dug that too much. Yeah, I mean, At least I, I would have beat I, Tim Burton to it. <laughs> I mean, uh, and in the comics. In the the Whitman comics, it's it's ridiculous. They they go into the black hole oh, on one page. Awful. Next page, they come out and they're fine, and right. they're just in an they're in an alternate dimension where they meet alternate dimension versions of old Bob and Reinhardt and yep. Maximilian. Except Maximilian can now talk in order to help the plot move along. He can talk, and uh, you know, and it, it's kind of it's really lame. I mean, the the first two issues are the adaptation of the film. And they're they're pretty good as far as an adaption, but the the continuing story just really kind of sucks. And you know what's funny? Point. I didn't I didn't ever realize this back then as a kid. But even though those are Whitman comics, they they feel very much like the old Disney comics. You know that yeah. uh, I yes. forget what those were gold uh, gold, not gold key not gold key Dell I think. Anyway, oh, okay. you know you. you I'm sorry. Yeah, Dell and Gold Key both put them out. Yeah. Well, you know, you commented about how in that third issue on Maximilian suddenly gained the ability to speak. That's very much a Disney comics thing because a lot of their non-speaking characters, and the one that always comes to my mind is Dumbo. Dumbo in the comics talked all the time, and I just thought that that was interesting. It, it's almost like a throwback to the old Disney comics with Maximilian suddenly I never being able of that, to talk. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing to me, the main interesting things to me about the comics is that they do include the deleted scene, which is generally referred to as um, uh, detour through engineering. And the scene is right after the scene in the hydroponics garden where they fight the sentries when they, they blast out the, uh, the roof. And actually, it's a pretty cool scene because all the sentry robots are starting to freeze, but they're still firing. I always thought that was neat. Yeah. Um, then they, they run across the catwalks that start collapsing, and they've got to take a detour through engineering. And the cat, basically the catwalk completely collapses after before Pizer and Kate can get across. And so Kate rides uh, Old Bob, and Pizer rides Vincent across the chasm. That's right. I think and I've whatever, seen that scene somewhere. Yeah, that, that scene exists. Like it, it was shot and finished. It just was cut for time. If you have the trading cards, I think it's um, yes. it's right yeah, right that, I think seventy-two. Yeah. We got yeah. a writing, and that the scene of Kate riding old Bob was used a lot in promotional pictures. Yeah, but it's not in the final cut of the film. And uh, that that's really the only deleted scene. There's a couple of alternate shots here and there. Uh, the trading cards are good for this. Like there's one where. Uh, Kate is taken by the sentries to the hospital. Like we see the sentries take her in the, at the bridge, and then the next time we see her, she's in the she's on the conveyor belt in the aluminum foil. But there, you know, there was a shot where the sentries actually, you know, kind of manhandle her down to the, uh, you know, in, into the hospital. 
But again, it's it's little things like that. They're just little cuts. There's not much. It's not like with Star Wars where, you know, we lost Diggs and Jabba and all that stuff. Most of what was shot ended up on the on the screen in this one. I know I read the book, but I, I don't remember a thing about it now. I literally Same don't here. remember anything about it. No, um uh, couple of last-minute things. I, I was just looking at um, the captain, uh, Robert Foster's uh, filmography here. A very interesting connection here. Is that it's kind of a circular connection is that, okay, Black Hole also co-stars Anthony Perkins, you know, most famously known as uh, Anthony, or, excuse me, as uh, Norman Bates Norman in Psycho. Bates. In the remake of Psycho back in 98, Robert Forster played, or you know, Foster rather played. Forster, no, it's Forster. Is it Forster? Yeah. He played um, um, Norman Bates's psych, uh, psychologist after he's caught at the end of the movie. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. And I was looking at this guy. I'm looking at the wiki entry on this guy right now, Robert Forster, and I was seeing his picture as he looks more or less today, and I'm going, "Damn, this dude looks really familiar." And it suddenly hit me. He was uh, he was the father. What were their names? Petrelli, Nathan, and Peter Petrelli on Heroes. Yeah. He was their dad oh, on Heroes. Heroes. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Jackie Brown, the Quentin Tarantino movie? No. Jackie Brown. He's fantastic in that movie. Really. He's a he's a bail bondsman, and he's just a great, three, super three dimensional character. You know, he brings. This realism, you know, he's a stereotype tough guy, but there's, you know, he brings this realistic element. That was sort of his comeback film. He started doing a lot of acting after being in that, after being sort of, you know, always in the, the you know, sort of second rate movies and getting character roles. You know, That's Quentin cool. Tarantino is like, this guy's a really good actor on top of being a great character actor. I liked him. And he on, is. Uh, I liked him a lot on Heroes because he was just a complete yeah. bastard, and I never made that connection with him being uh, uh, Captain Holland. That's pretty. That's pretty neat. I appreciate. I I never appreciated him, and I never appreciated Borgnine. As a matter of fact, when I was a yeah. kid, I was like, I always thought of Borgnine as sort of a clown, and I was like, yeah. Oh. He's in here just to be a sort of. And I didn't like his character when I was a kid, and I liked his character a lot more as yeah. an adult. And I just love Borgnine now. I think he's a great actor. I love his voice. And, you he's know, just, one of those, I, I, I like seeing him. He's one of those guys I'm really not very familiar with. And what's really, what's really funny is the two roles I know him best for are, are pretty much completely interchangeable. He seems like the same exact character in both movies, which is... Uh, you know, this movie and the Poseidon adventure, even down yeah. to his clothes are the same. It's like, damn, dude, <laughs> do you ever play anything else? <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's cab cabbie in, uh, escape from New York. Oh, that's yeah, right. Was... Yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> you know, uh, a couple, a couple of technical, uh, notes here. I didn't get to mention earlier. Just, um, the holograph when they're in the Palomino and they're looking at the holograph of the black hole, Mm -hmm. That was actually shot in camera. That's not a, a post-production effect. Uh, what they did was they put a piece of glass between the set and the camera and then projected the image onto the glass. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, so that, that, that's why, you know, people can, the, people, the actors walk behind it 
and you can, you know, it, it, it looks like they, you can still see them through it because it's translucent because it's projected on the glass. I just thought that was really creative, and, and that's, you know, uh, a very simplistic technique that works really well. Um, another thing, there's always been complaints about Vincent's eyes. That's just the two buttons glued on, and a lot of people seem to hate that. Originally, his eyes were going to be, uh, I can't remember the name of the company that produced them, but they were these uh, electronic chips, and you could, they were the same kind of chips that were used on stock tickers and airport, um, airport boards, arrival and departure boards, where right. you would send the signal and it would, it would flip the, the little faces up and down to create whatever kind of pattern you wanted. Well, though his eyes were supposed to be those type of discs, and they were going to be able to move the eyes around and look around and give an expression. But they didn't work on the first day of shooting, and they said, well, just put the buttons on there and we'll fix it. And they never got around to fixing it. Hmm. So I, I think that if they had used those discs, maybe it would have looked good. Maybe it would have looked corny. It's hard to say. And, I think that uh, actually might be really dated today. That's what's kind of ironic. Yeah. I think if they had gone with that, that we'd look at it now and go, that looks kind of, you know, 80s digital clock or something. You I, know? Yeah. I always looked at it as, ah, they just painted his eyes out. They just put things that look like eyes on him when they built this robot because yeah. people like to have eyes as a reference. You know, his visual sensors are probably just like little dots, you know, here and there. I think yeah, it but... makes him very cutesy, too, because he has great big eyes like most of your classic sympathetic animated characters, you know, yeah. would, would, you know, like a like an animated baby bunny or something would have yeah, yeah, great yeah. Big, huge <laughs> eyes with little tiny irises. And so when he has certain looks in the movie, he he does look almost like a like a pleading little yeah. cartoon bunny. I, I just get a kick out of that. I think he looks cool myself. I, I always yeah. thought he was one of the cooler movie robots. Out of proportion, right. heads and eyes always make people sympathetic towards it because it reminds them on a primal level, level of little animals and babies, you know? Right. And uh, one last funny technical note. All of the lasers, that the, the laser pistols that Pizer and Holland and everybody used throughout this film originally had little red LED lights installed in them that when you pulled the trigger, the, the LED would light up. With the idea being that okay, well now when we when we do the rotoscope animation of the lasers, now that the 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 muzzle flare will light up too, right? Well, they had to take these out because the actors were just constantly pulling the triggers. Just like yeah, <laughs> just just yeah, randomly pulling the triggers and, and yeah, like I shooting each that. other in the back of the head, shooting you know all this stuff. And they and so they they just took the lights out and said, no, you can't do it. You're not mature enough to play with your space lasers. <laughs> We're taking the batteries out of these, goddammit, and we're not giving them back till the end of the trip. Well, I've I've gotten about through all my what I what I have to say about this. Um, my my only final thought I would think on on the whole thing would be, and this is going to be the second time this month I put out this plea. Unfortunately, the first time was a, a, about the remake of They Live, but. Go watch this movie before they put out the remake. <laughs> I didn't think I would have to say it before, but yeah, go go check this out if you haven't checked it out because it's yeah, it's way better uh, than, I, than I remember it being, and they're I, gonna remake it and probably ruin it on us. Uh, yeah, I mean, my my, I would echo that. I would say that you know if if you're if you've never seen the black hole or maybe you saw it when you were younger and 
or you saw it when you were a kid, and oh, it was kind of corny, kind of cheesy. You know what? Give it a rent from Netflix. It's not, you know, it's going to be, and it's going to be something you can get the whole family together to watch. You know, just a, a, a fun, fast-moving little science fiction movie, and you know, the, the kids will be entertained, the parents will be entertained. It's just a good, solid piece of escapist uh, film. And, and that's all that it was trying to be, and it hits that mark and hits it out of the park. Yeah, I, I, I want to echo the same thing. Uh, I, I enjoyed it uh, a lot as a kid, and I'm so happy that uh, I really think it holds up well. I really enjoyed myself rewatching this, and uh, I'm glad that we bumped this one. We finally bumped this one to, to the forefront and, and got an episode out about it because, yeah, it, it was really good, and I had a good time watching it. Well, that's the bottom line is doing these shows, at least we, we you know, it's like my roommate will pop their head in the, into my room and, you know, I'll be in here watching the black hole. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Preparation o- for the show. It's tough. Yeah. The only other thing I wanted to say is uh, I, I'd like to dedicate this uh, this episode to the memories of both John Barry, who we just recently lost, and uh, and uh, Peter Ellenshaw, uh, two guys that uh, did some of their finest work on this film. I, I really mm-hmm. believe yep. that. Well, their their work is is you know foundational for why this film works mm-hmm. with with both of those guys. You know, that's one of the fundamental things that that makes this film great. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and, uh, and Vincent has a line in this film that is spoken through Kate, which uh, I think is, is suitable. Is that there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are not very many old bold pilots. <laughs> Did you know? You can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libson is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook too, if you can find me. Now available... Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. 
For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. Future Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U.